Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Tom Huntington, author of Main Roads to Gettysburg. Tom Huntington, author of Main Roads to Gettysburg, How Joshua Chamberlain, Oliver Howard, and 4,000 Men from the Pine Tree State Helped Win the Civil War's Bloodiest Battle. There's been a lot of books written about the Civil War. And that's true. What's new in this one? Well, it's new, I think, is the focus on Maine, and, and not just the 20th Maine, which is Joshua Chamberlain and Little Round Top. Um, they get a lot of attention, um, but there, are, there was a lot more to Maine's role at Gettysburg than just Chamberlain in the 20th Maine. And as I was started thinking about maybe doing a book about on this topic, because I am from Maine, I'm a native, born and bred pine tree stater, um, I began to realize you could almost tell the story of the whole battle just by telling what happened to the Maine regiments and, and, and personages there. Because they were at, like, it seemed like at all the pivot points there was, there was a Maine regiment or a Maine general. Um, so I thought, well, that's an interesting way to tell the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, but also tell some interesting stories about, you know, soldiers from the state where I grew up. When you were growing up in Maine, is, is this story about the 20th Maine known by everybody, or, or well, did that develop kind of later? It developed later. I mean, when I grew up in Maine, you know, don't tell anyone this, but I had no interest in the Civil War whatsoever. Uh, and then I went to Bowdoin College for two years. Um, I lived right across the street from Joshua Chamberlain's house. Uh, I'm not even sure if I was aware of that. At that time, it was student housing. You know, it was apartments for seniors. Um, and so, you know, Chamberlain wasn't such a big figure back then, I don't think. Uh, I later found out that actually Joshua and I are fraternity brothers. I joined the same fraternity at Bowdoin that he did. Um, but he really started to get um, renowned after the publication of The Killer Angels, and that was mid-'70s. And then when the movie Gettysburg came out, that was a big deal. And then he was, a, he was featured uh, prominently in Ken Burns' The Civil War. So he, he's kind of a modern superstar a little bit. Um, you know, people knew who he was, but the, the legendary status of the 20th Maine hadn't quite been cemented at that point. Is he all that cracked, he's cracked up to be? I would say yes. I mean, the, the, that, he's like the ultimate citizen soldier. I think that's the appeal of his story. He wasn't military trained. He, he didn't go to West Point. He was a Bowdoin professor, a uh, very smart man um, from, a, from a modest background. You say he could read eight languages. Yeah, yeah. He was a, you know, a, a professor of, of languages at, at Bowdoin. Um, he had attended a military academy for a very brief period when he was young, but then the family ran out of money and he had to come back home. Uh, so he had some interest in the military, but he was, he was a, uh, he wanted to go to theological school and become a minister, and he ended up at Bowdoin. Uh, so so that, the great appeal of that story is the fact that he was not a trained soldier, but he did learn the art of war. And, and at that moment when he was really needed at Little Round Top, he came through. And that was the first time he had led that regiment in battle. 
He had become its commander um, the, the month before when the first commander of the 20th Maine, Adelbert Ames, who was an interesting figure, um, was promoted to brigade command. So uh, Chamberlain became uh, commander of the regiment, and this was his first battle at Little Round Top. You know, and I think he did an extraordinary thing in that battle. I think uh, he, you know, he kept his head, he kept his uh, regiment together, and um, fought a wonderful battle. People do tend to disparage Chamberlain a bit now. I think people feel that his reputation, at least, is, is more than perhaps he deserves. And if you take a tour of Gettysburg today with a big group, and it involves a little round top, at some point someone will say something, you know, with, with air quotes about Joshua Chamberlain, the man who saved the Union, uh, which I think is unfair. Um, uh, Chamberlain did fight a, a wonderful battle at, at Gettysburg and did a, a great job. After, there are some accounts that he tells, you know, later in the war about his experience at Fredericksburg that left some people scratching their heads. Did that, did that really happen? Uh, his, his major at, at on Little Round Top, Ellis Spear, got increasingly frustrated um, by some of the accounts that Chamberlain wrote in his later years. Uh, he published an account of Fredericksburg in Cosmopolitan magazine, I think it was in 1913 or so, and Spear was so upset by it, he sat down and wrote a rebuttal, which he, he never published during his lifetime. But then he wrote letters to Ames, the former commander, complaining about, uh, about this account, saying perhaps, perhaps Chamberlain intended this for fiction. Was, was Joshua Chamberlain thought to be a bit of a self-promoter? It depends who you ask. I, I think he was well-respected in Maine during his lifetime. He was a great orator. He was in great demand at veterans' reunions and things of that nature. Um, there's a story I tell in a book about someone from the 19th Maine who came up to Chamberlain after Chamberlain had made a talk. And he said, you know, the guy from the 19th Maine said, based on what you said, it sounds like the 20th Maine won the Battle of Gettysburg. I thought it was the 19th Maine. And Chamberlain said, well, you think right. He said, it's like like every picket in the garden fence keeps the pigs out. So we were, we were all responsible for the, for the victory at Gettysburg. Uh, could you talk a little bit about Bowdoin College? Because you mentioned you went there besides, besides you and Joshua Chamberlain. There was a couple other uh, uh, notable graduates. Yeah. In fact, Bowdoin claims to have uh, the, the most um, alumni and students to fight in the Union uh, during the Civil War. That, there's something like 270 Bowdoin students who ended up fighting in the war. Um, Otis Howard, Oliver Otis Howard, was a Bowdoin graduate. Uh, he graduated from Bowdoin, then he went to West Point, so he also graduated from West Point. And he played an important role at Gettysburg. Um, there were uh, Thomas Hyde, who was a, a soldier I write about a lot. He was with the 7th Maine and wrote um, a really wonderful memoir of his war years um, called Following the Greek Cross, which was the symbol of the Sixth Corps. Uh, he was a Bowdoin College graduate. Um, so he, I came across a lot of people from Bowdoin um, as I researched this book. And I ended up doing a lot of my research at Bowdoin because they have a wonderful collection of letters and manuscripts. Um, I tell the story of Charles O. Hunt, who was with the 5th Maine Battery. Um, and Hunt, after the war, he transcribed all his Civil War letters and filled in the gaps of his narrative in these two huge handwritten volumes that, that Bowdoin has in their collections today. And, and that was just fascinating reading. You also mentioned Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yes. And uh, she's the one who wrote uh, Uncle, Uncle Tom's, Tom's Cabin, Cabin, and Abraham Lincoln said, oh, you're the little lady who started this war. Yes. Um, President Franklin Pierce. Yeah. 
and uh, who's the other one? Presidents. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Yep, yep. I used to work at the uh, the, the uh, Longfellow Hawthorne Longfellow Library uh, when I was a student there, and then I went back there to do my my research. So they were both graduates. Um, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe was the wife of Calvin Stowe, who was professor at Bowdoin. And Chamberlain and others would, would go over to, to their home and she would read her work in progress. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of forces going on in Maine at that time. Why would a student at Bowdoin College uh, volunteer to go off to fight in the Civil War? Well, for the same reason that, that young men all over the country volunteered to fight in the Civil War. Uh, they all had, you know, they all had different motives. Um, mostly, I'd say the driving motive was to preserve the Union, which is not to say that the, 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 the root cause of the Civil War was slavery. And that's why the Southern states succeeded, because they thought um, Lincoln's administration would interfere with slavery. So they succeeded from the Union, and, and, and Lincoln fought to get them back into the Union. Um, so I don't want to say that, that people and young people in Maine went to war to end slavery, uh, even though that's what ended up happening. But uh, for many of them, they wanted to preserve the Union. The Union was almost a sacred thing to, to, to people back then. Why did they care that much? Because the Union wasn't all that old. It was like 70, 75 years old at the time. No, and, and the country wasn't as unified around as one country as it is today. They say that um, before the Civil War, you would say the United States are. And, and after the Civil War, it was the United States is. It's now a united country. But um, they looked on the founding fathers, George Washington and, and the people in Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, as almost a sacred trust. And they thought it was just a terrible thing to try to tear the country apart. Other, other people joined, just they thought it would be adventure. Um, um, a, a soldier I write about a lot, John Haley, was just a private with the uh, 17th Maine, and he was bored with his job. A friend of his enlisted, and he thought, well, maybe I'll do that too. He said, I, I would like the adventure. He said something like, I would like to experience a battle as long as I was, I was about a mile away. Do you know about how many different people you write about in this book? You have a lot of little individual accounts. I do. I, you know, I never totaled them up. Um, one of my goals when I wrote this was to try to get the story from the individual level. And, and I loved finding letters from soldiers who explained their, their visceral reactions to war. Um, and, and I found them all over the place, especially around here. Um, the Army Heritage Center in Carlisle has a tremendous collection of letters. Um, and, and the Gettysburg Military Park Library has a great collection of letters. Um, some of my favorite letters I found were at, at Carlisle. It was this um, young man named George Rawlins, who was from, I think, Vassalboro. Um, no doubt he had never been out of the state before he signed up. And he wrote these wonderful letters home. They have the originals in Carlisle. Um, and you just get the sense of a young man who was having the time of his life. He, he, he wrote home how in Boston it was just a vast sea of faces. And he, he was astonished by Washington, D.C., which is a city that a lot of people complained about for its squalor and its muddy roads. Um, but Rollins said, I could, I could fill two pages describing everything I've seen here. Are there times you were able to actually hold the, the original letter in yes, your hand? Yes, yeah. What's that experience like? It's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's really cool. I went up, um, did a lot of research in Augusta, Maine. 
because they have what they call the Civil War Regimental Correspondence. And these are the letters sent by everyone to the governor and to the, uh, the adjutant general in Maine and about everything. And some of them are just routine business, but every so often you stumble across this, this letter that just makes the history come alive. I found one by um, a Sergeant William Higgins, and he was in the third Maine, and he was a second sergeant, and he was very upset because he had a smoothbore musket and he wanted a pistol. And he was told that only first sergeants would get issued sidearms. So he did what any soldier would do. He sat down, he wrote a letter to the governor, and he said, I want you to go down to the arsenal, procure me a pistol, and mail it to me. He said, I promise I'll use it only for the defense of my country. <laughs> I don't know if he got his pistol. I assume he probably did not. I have to ask you about something, because uh, a lot of people you write about are not household names. You have uh, Philip Kearney, one of the war's more colorful characters. Yeah. He was independently wealthy, enlisted in the 1st U.S. Dragoons. He was sent to France to study cavalry mm -hmm. tactics. He was an observer with the French Chasseur d'Afrique in Algiers, lost his left arm during the fighting at the gates of Mexico City, learned to grasp the horse's reins in his teeth while he waved his saber with his right hand. After Mexico, he returned to Europe and fought for Emperor Napoleon III. He sounds like something out of a movie or a, a romance novel, but he was a very real character. Um, and he, I write about him because um, Hiram Barry, who was a main general, served uh, in his division. And, um, and the soldiers loved, um, I think it was Carney. I think he pronounced it Carney. Mm -hmm. And he was an absolute character. He learned to despise George McClellan, who was the first commander of the Army of the Potomac. And um, according to one story, when McClellan announced his, he called it a change of base on the peninsula in 1862, you know, a lot of people thought it sounded more like a retreat. Uh, Carney rode over with, uh, Hiram, with Hiram Barry and um, castigated him in such harsh terms that everyone expected that Carney would be court-martialed, but he wasn't. Uh, he did not suffer fools gladly. Um, you know, inspiring figure on the battlefield, and he was killed um, at the Battle of Chantilly after Second Bull Run, where he accidentally rode into the Confederate lines during a fierce thunderstorm and tried to bluff his way out, uh, but they recognized him as a Union officer and, and shot him down as he tried to gallop away. Who was Hiram Berry? Hiram Berry is, I would say, one of the more surprising figures that I came across. Um, I call him my Janet Lee character because if you remember Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, he cast Janet Lee in that movie even though she was a big star, and then he killed her off halfway through. And I wanted, I wanted a, a figure in the book that you kind of learn to like and, and admire and appreciate and then you know, kill him off. And, and Berry was killed at Chancellorsville. And he was a former mayor of Rockland, Maine. He was a successful businessman. He, he was a state legislator, uh, very talented, um, ambitious man. He was a Democrat, um, but when the war started, uh, he signed up and became commander of the 4th Maine for a time before he became brigade commander. And I found a letter in the Maine Historical Society archives from a soldier who was on the peninsula in 1862 and he recalled how Barry rode up to the soldiers as they were digging entrenchments. And he saw a soldier wearing soaking wet clothes. And he said to the sol asked the soldier if he had dry clothes he could get into. And the soldier said he did. He had them in his tent. And Barry said, you should change into them as soon as possible or you'll catch cold. And then he rode off. And the soldier was astonished. He turned to a main man and said, what kind of general is that? I've never been talked to by a general like that before. 
And the main man said, that's just General Barry. He looks after his men. He was a very, a very good soldier. He was like, like, um, like Chamberlain. He was a citizen soldier. He had some militia experience. Um, he, but he became a very effective commander. In fact, in, at the Battle of Williamsburg on the peninsula, he took his brigade on a difficult cross-country trek and to come to Joe Hooker's assistance just in the nick of time as, as Hooker was about to be overrun. And he, he, he earned you know, Hooker's eternal gratitude for that. Uh, I've never found anyone who had a bad thing to say about Barry. Why did Kearney uh, despise McClellan? He thought McClellan was not aggressive enough, um, probably for the same reasons that every, a lot of people despise McClellan. Um, they thought that he should be attacking instead of you know, digging entrenchments and laying siege to Yorktown. Um, Didn't his soldiers love him? Soldiers loved him. And that's not just a, like a legend of the, the Civil War. Time and time again, you come across a constant soldier who said how much they were inspired just by seeing McClellan. He was the young Napoleon. He was right. the young Napoleon. In fact, um, I quote some soldiers, I think Thomas Hyde from the 7th Maine, or it was Selden Connor, um, saw him, he, McClellan came and addressed them after Williamsburg and, and praised them. And he, he said, we just love this man. We would fight anything for him. But then you say at, at the uh, Peninsula campaign, um, once it became obvious that the Union defenders had bloodily repulsed rebel attacks on Malvern Hill, uh, the, this one guy, John Porter, sent a message yep. to McClellan suggesting an attack, but the young Napoleon had already issued orders for the army to make a final leg of retreat to the James. He had snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, McClellan won that battle. Uh, instead of, of taking advantage of it, he, he had decided he was going to retreat to the James River, and by God, that's what he was going to do. And he spent a lot, some of that campaign on gunboats in the river when he should have been with his army commanding it. Um, McClellan is a frustrating figure. Um, when I lived in Washington, D.C., I would often walk past his statue up above DuPont Circle and shake my fist. <laughs> McClellan! Um, he was a great organizer, I'll give him that. And he was an inspirational figure. But uh, he probably would have been better, perhaps, in Washington organizing things than in command of the army in the field. Can you explain how the whole system worked when people went and signed up, how they were assigned to different units and... and how they were assigned to different places to go in the war? Well, what, what often happened, especially early in the, the war, is um, um, people would enlist soldiers themselves. People would be inspired. They'd set up an office. They'd get permission from the state, and they would enlist soldiers. Uh, and if they enlisted enough, they would become a commander of that company. Um, and then, so they could start their own unit? Uh, th well, they'd start their own companies, and then their companies would be assigned to a regiment. Um, most of the main regiments tended to be from one specific area. You had a coastal regiment, you had a, a, an inland regiment. Uh, the 20th Maine, I believe, was one exception. They had people, they kind of cobbled that together from all over the state. Um, and then, you know, once you're in the Army and you're in a regiment, you go where you're ordered. And, and, um, and that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, some of the soldiers I write about I like because um, they, they did question authority whenever they thought authority was wrong. Elijah Walker from the 4th Maine was one. At Gettysburg, he was in Devil's Den, and he was protecting a battery, a New York battery, and the battery commander asked him to move off to the left, all the way down to the end of Devil's Den, and protect the left flank. And, and uh, 
and Walker said, you know, I wouldn't go into that gorge if you paid me, essentially. And um, so the battery commander complained to, to, to um, Walker's brigade commander who told him, do as you're told, you know, go, go where he's asking you to go, which he ended up having to dash back and, and, and you know, try to protect the battery from where he had been in the first place. But well, you also on the, on the trend of uh, them having independent streaks, you mm -hmm. talked about the, the uh, group of Maine soldiers who signed up for, was it a two-year enlistment, and it was up, and they were uh, in the middle of the war. Yeah, and it was the second Maine. Some of the men had signed up for two years, some for three, and when the two-year men got sent home, the three-year men wanted, thought they should go as well. And um, they essentially mutinied. They said they would not fight anymore. And um, these men were sent to Joshua Chamberlain in the 20th Maine, and Chamberlain was told to deal with them. And I say that, you know, had Adelbert, Adelbert Ames still been in command of the regiment, he would have, I'm sure, dealt with them very harshly. He was a strict disciplinarian. But Chamberlain was made of different stuff, and he, and they, they show this in the movie Gettysburg, and it seems fairly realistic. He gathered them together, gave them a talk, said he was going to treat them like soldiers. He would do the best he could for them, um, um, but they really should take up arms and, and help out, you know, the regiment. And almost all of them did, including one one soldier, Andrew Tozier, who became the color bearer on Little Round Top, and he was one of the mutinous soldiers in the Second Maine. And after the war, um, he actually worked in Chamberlain's household, and. He, Chamberlain worked to get him the Medal of Honor for his actions at Little Round Top. And then I found out just recently he's buried in the same main cemetery, Andrew Tozier, that my grandmother and my great-grandfather who fought in the Civil War is buried. Where so did your great-grandfather fight? He joined uh, the 31st Maine, so he signed up in 1864. I just found this out doing research for this book. Um, and I found his enlistment papers in the archives in Augusta, Maine, with his signature on them. And he's buried in uh, Litchfield Cemetery, where my grandmother is buried. And I used to go to that cemetery with my grandmother, because her husband had died before I was born, and look at her tombstone, and she would say, you know, someday I'll have my other date carved on that stone. And about a hundred yards behind it was a big stone that said Huntington. And it turned out that was my great-grandfather, who was a Civil War veteran. Do you have any memorabilia from that? Any letters from him or, Nothing. or stuff? No. The only things I found are the, the things in the archives, including another thing that was interesting. When he was mustered out at the end of the war, he owed the federal government $80 for his uniform and his canteen. And so he had to sign on the dotted line, you know, saying that he would pay that back, which I just don't think is fair. Can you explain the significance of the regimental colors and the color bearer? Yeah. I mean, flags played a very important role in the Civil War because they were a way of communicating, for one thing. You didn't have walkie-talkies, you didn't have cell phones. So if you wanted to see where a regiment was, you would look and find their flag. And they also had great symbolic importance because to the regiments, their flags represented them. And carrying the flag was a great honor. And losing a flag was a great, you know, shame. So you'd hear, you'd hear story after story of, you know, color bearers being cut down and someone else picking up the flag and then being cut down and someone else picking up the flag and, and shaking the flag at the enemy and being very proud when you were able to save, you know, snatch the flag back from, you know, capture. 
But while you're holding it, you can't be shooting back at the people who are shooting at you. Well, well Tozier on Little Round Top was. He, he, he had the flag in the crook of his arm while he was firing. Several people recounted seeing him amid the swirls of smoke of battle, um, shooting and holding the flag. But for the most part, no, you were, you were unarmed. That was, that was your weapon. It was of you know, great symbolic importance. And that's why yeah, at, at Gettysburg, the 16th Maine, the story of their flag you know, makes more sense. On July 1st, the 16th Maine was ordered forward to hold an impossible position just to buy some time so the rest of their division could retreat. At this point, they were being overrun by the Confederates. And they were much reduced in numbers by that point in the war. Uh, I think they had 275 when the battle began, probably 200 at that point. And it was, it was suicidal, but um, they were told to hold that point at all costs. Um, which they did for a, a good 20 minutes. They hel held off the Confederates, but they realized it was inevitable they were going to be overrun and, and captured. So they decided they would they tear up the flag, they, the regimental flag and the national flag. They would tear it to bits and distribute the pieces among the soldiers so that the flags would not get captured. And so all these soldiers had a little fragment of, of their, their, the flag with them. And when I would, was doing research at the Maine Historical Society in Portland, I found Abner Small's scrapbooks. Um, and inside that scrapbook was his fragment of the national flag from the 16th Maine at Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, that was really cool to come face to face with that. So when all these different regiments from Maine were assembled, did they tend to stick together or the, were they scattered throughout the army? You know, for the most part, they were scattered throughout the army, which which is good for my story because then I have them scattered all over the battlefield at Gettysburg and each one sees a different you know, part of the fight. But for the most part, sometimes you'd get um, you know, a brigade that might have a few main regiments in it, but they tended to be um, split up for the most part. They were in a lot of battles leading up to Gettysburg. Oh, absolutely. What was the first one that main soldiers would have been in? Well, it would have probably been first Bull Run. Um, which was a debacle for the Union. Um, and both Otis Howard was, was involved in that. He was a brigade commander, and he had main brigades, in, main regiments in his brigade. And Hiram Berry was commanding the 4th Maine at that battle. Um, and Abner Small, whose accounts I, I really enjoy, was in the 3rd Maine at that point, and he described um, the fierce fighting. And it, it was a baptism of fire for all of these men. And these weren't professional soldiers. They did not know how to fight. Um, they hadn't been drilled a great deal at that point. Um, it was a, a good plan that the Army had on paper, but unfortunately it was probably too complicated for these green soldiers to carry out. Um, and even though it, things went well for the, for the Union Army at first, uh, it turned into a rout. And, um, and, and that's when a lot of people had their eyes open. They realized, yeah, this war is going to take a long time. It's, it's not going to be a glorious adventure that's going to last a weekend. It's going to last for years. I want to read something you, you have in here about uh, Oliver Otis Howard. And uh, you say, as one historian noted, um, no officer entrusted with field direction of troops has ever equaled Howard's record for surviving so many tactical errors of judgment and disregard of orders emerging later not only with increased rank, but on one occasion with the thanks of Congress. Wow. How do you manage that? Well, I think Howard would tell you he had God on his side. Um, Howard, Howard was an interesting character. I would say 
at best he was perhaps a mediocre gen uh, general, at least during in the Eastern theater of the war. When he was fighting with Sherman in the West, I think he functioned a little better. Um, he, he went to Bowdoin. Um, Bowdoin has put all, scanned all of his letters and put them online, which is fascinating. So you can read every letter he wrote during the war. Um, and you really get a, a, a sense of the man. I think he was a good man. He was a decent man. He was a very religious man. He had his, his religious awakening while he was on, stationed in Florida before the war. After that, people called him, they called him the Christian general. Um, I th his men called him Old Prayer Book, which I don't think is quite as laudatory. Um, even his own brother, Roland, who was a minister, wrote a letter to, to Otis and said, you have to stop preaching to your men. You're going to lose their respect. Just set a good example. That should be good enough. Um, so he was, he, was, he was not a religious hypocrite. He was, he was, he was profoundly religious, um, but he was not a very good general, unfortunately. But he did do one very important thing at Gettysburg, and he stationed a reserve on Cemetery Hill on July 1st. And after the, the debacle of the first day, that became the rallying point for the Army of the Potomac. Um, and for the rest of his days, um, Howard was adamant that he made that decision. He did not receive orders from his superior, John Reynolds, to do that. He did it on his own. You think he deserves credit for that? I think he does. I think he does. You can say a lot of things about Howard, but he was not a liar. Um, I think it was his decision. John Reynolds, who was on the field first and was killed that morning, may very well have realized that that was a good defensive position to hold. But it seems that if he had, and he had issued any orders, Howard did not receive them. So he did make that decision on his own. Was that the pivotal difference in the battle? Was that why the Union won? It was definitely a pivotal difference in the battle. Because the Union was badly beaten on July 1st. And, you know, Howard also deserves some blame for that. Um, once Reynolds was killed, he became the, the, you know, the commanding general on the field. And, you know, people have criticized his decisions. You know, it's he, maybe he should have moved the 1st Corps and the 11th Corps back faster before they were overwhelmed and, and broken up. Uh, but he did not do that. Um, but they were able to reform on Cemetery Hill, which is the, the pivot point of Meade's famous fishhook line. And it was a great defensive line. And, and the fact that it was such a good defensive line is one of the major factors in why the Union Army won the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, leading up to Gettysburg, you, you mentioned the Peninsula mm -hmm. campaign. There's a, a lot of main regiments there. Yep, yep. Yes, um, and that was McClellan's attempt to take Richmond, uh, which started off very well, and then he got kind of bogged down in front of Yorktown and decided to lay siege instead of attacking. Um, it was very thinly defended. He could have taken the town without a problem. Instead, he, he spent a month you know, in front of, of Yorktown. Um, but you had uh, the 7th Maine fighting at Williamsburg. You had Hiram Barry fighting at Williamsburg. Um, you had a lot of Maine men were involved in the Peninsula Campaign. Now, after Fredericksburg, um, they were at, who was in charge at Fredericksburg? That was Ambrose, Ambrose Burnside was the commanding officer of that the Army That seemed to be a low morale point there. <laughs> yeah, and rightly so. Um, poor Burnside. Um, Howard. Um, wrote letters home because he met with Burnside right after Burnside learned that McClellan had been um, replaced. He was replacing McClellan. And he, had, he wrote over to Burnside who said, it's not a fit matter for congratulation. 
He, he did not think he should be in command of this army. Um, nonetheless, he moved pretty rapidly and he, he, against Fredericksburg, and he was let down by the army bureaucracy who could not get him the pontoon bridges he needed to cross the Rappahannock River, um, which is ridiculous. And they, he could have captured Fredericksburg before Robert E. Lee was able to get there and reinforce the heights behind the city. But he didn't, uh, and he still made these, these terrible attacks um, against a, a, a position that he really had no chance of capturing. You say here the, some of the soldiers in the 19th wanted out after Fredericksburg, wanted out so badly they began accidentally wounding yes. themselves, shooting themselves in the hand or chopping off a finger or toe just to get sick leave. The situation became so dire, Colonel Frederick Sewell felt compelled to issue an order forbidding any more accidents in the yeah, regiment. Yeah, forbidding accidents, because these were, you know, accidentally on purpose. And it's something you hear about in every war. You, the, you know, the, the soldier who's had so much he, he needs to get out and shoots himself in the foot and says with an accident, you know, I have to be discharged. Uh, morale was terrible after Fredericksburg. Um, and then Joe Hooker came in, and he did kind of reorganize the army and got things functioning a lot better, got people some, you know, better food and gave people furloughs, and, and the morale picked up tremendously. That's one thing that Joe Hooker did very well. And there's an account in there, I think, from the 5th Maine. Um, they were sitting by the fire, some men of the 5th Maine, and some horsemen rode up and, and came down and sat by the fire with them and, and he said, how are things going? And, and they showed him the horror, they had moldy bread, that's all they had to eat. And they showed him the moldy bread and the horseman said, that's a little rough. And then he got up and rode off. And the next day they got a shipment of fresh, freshly baked bread. And that horseman was Joe Hooker, who was riding around the army getting a, a feel for the state of affairs, which was not good at that point. I have to get back to Oliver Howard again, and you say the Battle of Chancellorsville mm -hmm. was the low point of Oliver Howard's military career more than any other Union officer except for Joe Hooker. Howard must shoulder the blame for the Army of the Potomac's debacle in the tangled wilderness in May of 1863. Uh, it was a terrible moment for Howard, a terrible moment for the, the 11th Corps, which he commanded at Chancellorsville. They were on the far right of the Army. And he received several commands to watch his flank. Um, orders from Hooker, which he did not really do. He said he did, but he didn't. And then later in the day, the Confederate Army was seen to be moving, and um, Hooker interpreted this to be a retreat. Lee was retreating, which is what he wanted Lee to do, so it was kind of, you know, his, his wishes were fulfilled. But it wasn't. It was Stonewall Jackson making his epic flank march to attack Otis Howard's unprotected flank, which is the far right of the Union Army. Uh, one of uh, Howard's division commanders, Carl Schurz, said he told him over and over again, we're going to be attacked. You really need to protect your flank. And he didn't. And so when, when Jackson fell on the unsuspecting 11th Corps, it was a rout. And they were able to pretty much roll up the Corps. And the poor soldiers of the 11th Corps took much of the blame. A lot of them were Germans uh, and immigrants. And uh, some of the, the soldiers sneered at these Germans, the flying Dutchmen, they called them. But a lot of them fought well, despite the odds against them. But they were let down by, by Otis Howard. How did Howard keep bouncing back from these things? That's a mystery to me. At least uh, Chancellorsville is a mystery. Um, because Joe Hooker was furious with him. Um, years later, he, was, he told a newspaper reporter that you know, Howard should be wearing petticoats. You know, he's very good at re leading a prayer meeting, but that's no good when it comes to leading an army corps. Um, but he, he got no rebuke 
And he, he, st he stayed in command of the 11th Corps and was still in command of the 11th Corps at Gettysburg. You have a scene in uh, Gettysburg when uh, uh, Hancock mm. rides up and says, well, I'm in charge now, right. even though Howard was a senior officer. Yeah, Howard outranked Hancock. So after the, the first day's fighting, General Meade, who was the, the commander of the army, was still in Tawnytown um, trying to assess the situation. So he sent uh, Winfield Scott Hancock up to Gettysburg to take command on the field for him personally. Now, Howard was the commanding officer on the field at the time, uh, and when Hancock arrived, he saw this as a rebuke. He said, you know, General, you can give no orders while I am here, or something like that. Well, Hancock could. He had Meade's orders saying, you are going to be in charge. Somehow they managed to uh, work it out amongst themselves and divide up the responsibilities. Uh, but Howard said he, he felt mortified. He sat down, he wrote a letter to Meade, a message, and sent it to him saying, I, I, want, you to, I want to know if you think I did anything wrong. I, I find this to be humiliating that you're re replacing me with Hancock. Um, I think it was a good move on Meade's part. Um, Howard may have been a, a, a nice man, but he didn't have that quality that, that makes a fighting general, and, and Hancock had that in spades. He was, people said even in civilian dress you would have, you know, obeyed orders from Hancock. He just had that power of command, and he, just by arriving he kind of stiffened the backbone of the Army of the Potomac. Where um, else would you have found Maine, Mainers, people from Maine, at the Battle of Gettysburg? Oh boy. Besides they were, Little Round Top. They were all over the place. You had, um, you had the Third Maine, who was fighting in the Peach Orchard. And in the morning of July 2nd, they actually made this advance with some U.S. sharpshooters to Pitzer's Woods. Um, this was a position where they had, they had detected some Confederate movements. And so they went to see what was going on there, and they did find Confederates in, in this woods. And they had a sharp skirmish there. And in a sense, this, this kind of precipitated a chain of events that completely changed the complexion of the battle because Dan Sickles, who commanded the Third Corps at Gettysburg, was worried about Confederates falling on his left. And when he heard about this fighting, uh, he became more worried. And he decided to move his corps forward. And this is a very controversial move to this day. He moved the Third Corps without orders far forward of the rest of the army in a very exposed uh, and difficult to defend position. Um, so you could say, in a sense, the Third Maine might have been responsible for that. And of course, then they fought in the, the Peach Orchard. Um, you had the 17th Maine fighting in the wheat field. And they, they did an amazing defense be behind this stone wall that uh, it was a farmer's wall in the field. They called it a breastwork ready-made. And it came in tremendously handy. Uh, and their monument's one of my favorite monuments on the battlefield. It's, it's very tall. And on the top, there's a Maine soldier behind a, a piece of stone wall gazing off into the distance, just like the soldiers of the real 17th Maine did. Uh, you had the, you know, the 4th Maine under Elijah Walker in, in the uh, Peach Orchard, in, uh, in Devil's Den. And for a time, they were the far left of the Union line because Little Round Top was undefended at that point. So it was the 4th Maine that was on the far left of the Union line. How often do you go to Gettysburg these days? I try to get down as, as often as possible. Um, I'm going down actually tomorrow. I'm going to do a talk at the Gettysburg Foundation, so I'm really looking forward to that. It's, I mean, Gettysburg is a special place. You know, even, you know, just the natural landscape is beautiful. But when you get down there and you realize, you know, what happened here, um, 
you know, the horror, the suffering, the bravery, um, the stories, just the thousands and thousands of stories that happen on that battlefield. Um, it it's just affects you. It really does. Do you still learn more things about it? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a bottomless well, Gettysburg. Every soldier who fought in that battle is a story. And many of those stories will never be recovered because the soldiers are gone and forgotten. But, you know, every soldier who left behind an account just adds to that depth of knowledge. And, and to me, that is, the, that is the fascinating part of the Civil War, is the stories of these individuals who were involved in it and had experiences, um, good experiences, bad experiences. Um, one of my, f just a little moment in time is the 17th Maine who had been fighting desperately behind this stone wall in the wheat field. And, and they fought off attack after attack. And they, found, they, they fought off one attack and there was this brief lull in the fighting. And it came to such a relief that all the men on the line just burst into laughter of relief and exhilaration. You know, the adrenaline rush of being in that fight and surviving that fight. And to me, that's just such a human moment. These men, you know, smoke-stained and bloody and grimy, just finding this bit of relief and just bursting into, into laughter as a result. I think it's a great bit of human experience. Do you have a favorite kind of off-the-beaten-path place at Gettysburg that if somebody's never been there or never been to this particular place, they ought to really go? I like Big Round Top. You know, you hear a lot about Little Round Top, but Big Round Top is a nice, it's a nice hike. You know, get some exercise walking up there. Uh, there are some monuments up there, including another one to the 20th Maine. Um, the 20th Maine did have to move up Big Round Top after they fought at Little Round Top. When they were exhausted, uh, out of ammunition, and they received orders, you know, take the big hill over there next. And they had to do it at nighttime and about 200 men had to climb up these slopes. And when you climb up Big Round Top, you'll see there are houses, there are rocks as big as houses up there. It's a terrible terrain to, to climb up in the dark when you can hear the enemy soldiers falling back ahead of you through the, the brush, not knowing when the shots are gonna ring out, when you might be killed. Um, so, so Big Round Top is definitely worth, worth a visit. Was there fighting involved in them taking Big Round Top? There was some skirmishing. There was gunfire exchanged. There was a great story. Um, you know, it's, it's dark. There's a, there's a moon out, but, you know, they're in the woods, so it's pretty dark. And they moved up to the top of the hill, and they could see um, rebel campfires burning just ahead of them. And the, and the Confederates heard, you know, this crashing in the woods, so they, they hollered out, you know, we're Fourth Texas, who are you? And some main man shouted back, we're Fourth Texas, too. And so a bunch of the Fourth Texas came out, and. They were the, the 20th Maine with their guns leveled, and they captured about 30 of the soldiers. What was night like at Gettysburg in the, between the days of the battle? Well, um, it could, it was, in its own way, it was horrible, because uh, you know, after the fighting, you had the wounded still lying in the field, screaming for water, screaming for their mothers. Um, it, was, it was good weather. It was July. The moon was out. Um, Oliver Howard described on July 2nd as he was riding over to General Meade's headquarters for a consultation, you know, seeing all the lanterns dotting the battlefield as uh, people were going out trying to get the wounded off the field, you know, and, and then the, the, the cries and the shouts, you know, and then in the middle of the night occasionally, you know, someone would shoot his gun and there'd be a, a fusillade of fire on both sides. Um, but 
it must have been just a tense and, and horrible night because you know the next night you're going to be fighting again. You know, who knows if you're going to survive the next day's battle or not. No, I, I won't be able to find it now, and maybe, uh, I hope you can remember no, the I incident. Hope I can but too. if I remember right, there was a, a meeting in Meade's tent one of the nights of the battle, yeah. and one of the generals who was well known, whose name I forget right now, just said, Whatever you guys decide, and he flopped yeah. down and went to sleep. This was at, at Chancellorsville. This is when Joe Hooker had called his corps commanders together to decide, you know, what to do the next day. And, and Hooker appears had already decided he was going to retreat. But John Reynolds um, was not actively involved in the fighting that day. So he said, you know, whatever Meade says is fine with me. And, and, he, and he went to sleep. And then, you know, Chan and then Hooker came back and said, I'm going to retreat. And Reynolds says, you know, why did he call us all together if he intended to retreat all along? Oh, I have to ask about another name that hasn't come up yet, and that is Hannibal Hamlin. Yes. A main resident. Yes, and Abraham Lincoln's first vice president. And he, unfortunately, uh, for Hannibal Hamlin, and unfortunately, I think for the country, he was not Lincoln's second vice president. Um, Lincoln had made a more political choice with Andrew Johnson, who was a pro-union politician from Tennessee. And then when Lincoln was assassinated and Johnson became president, I think it was a disaster for the country and, and terrible for Reconstruction. But Hamlin, he was a, a state senator. He was a, a U.S. senator. And apparently was completely surprised when he found out that Lincoln had picked him uh, as vice president. He loved the Senate. He didn't want to leave the Senate, but he did. And then during the war, he would he would join he would join militia units in Maine and 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 you know drill with them as vice president. As vice president, yeah. Several soldiers would and would mention you know finding Hannibal Hamlin you know with the militia. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot for a vice president to do. How did the 20th Maine find itself on Little Round Top on July 2nd? Well, the 20th Maine was part of the, the, the 5th Corps, and the 5th Corps was somewhat late arriving in the battle. They got there on July 2nd during the day. After a long march, they marched from Hanover overnight, and they were part of a brigade that belonged to Strong Vincent, who was a lawyer from Erie, Pennsylvania. And um, the Army's engineer, Governor Warren, had discovered that Little Round Top was unprotected. And this is in part because Dan Sickles had moved his corps forward. And there was no one on Little Round Top but some flag wavers, you know, signalmen. So he sent orders to, um, to uh, Henry Slocum, the commander of the 5th Corps, saying we need some men on Little Round Top, uh, which they didn't call it Little Round Top at that point. It had all kinds of names. You probably called that that Rocky Hill. And so Slocum sent out some orders. Um, to James Barnes, who was the division commander, um, but they were intercepted by Strong Vincent. He, he, the message, he saw the messenger and said, come here, what, what are your orders? And he said, well, I'm trying to find General Barnes. He said, what are your orders? And he said, well, they've told me that we need soldiers on that, that rocky hill. So Vincent, on his own authority, said, I will do it. I'll take care of it, which was a, he could have been court-martialed. He, he had other orders he was supposed to follow. But he said, I'll take my brigade to Little Round Top, and, and we'll, we'll defend it. So he rode on ahead to check out the position, and the brigade followed. Um, and when they got there, they found Vincent on the rock. He had left his, sat, his sword strapped to his saddle, and all he had was his wife's riding crop. So he was pointing out you know, where people go with his riding crop. And he posted the 20th Maine in the far left of his brigade. 
uh, and this was July 2nd, the afternoon of July 2nd, 1863. Uh, and, the, and Chamberlain assembled his men, um, and he, they had hardly gotten their position when they could see Confederate troops moving through the woods from Big Round Top. And this was William Oates in the 15th Alabama. And they had actually climbed up Big Round Top um, and then climbed back down the side. And, and it looked like they were going to be attacking the 20th Maine's left. So Chamberlain ordered a movement where he bent his line back to protect that left. Um, and they had just gotten into position uh, when the fighting began. Very thinned out ranks. They had a lot of space to cover. Um, and um, it was a ferocious battle, ferocious battle. How did Chamberlain learn how to lead? He read books. <laughs> he read books and he studied with Adelbert Ames. Now, Ames was a West Pointer. Um, he had been an artilleryman at the start of the war. In fact, he was badly wounded at First Bull Run, uh, would get the Medal of Honor for that fight. And then he was assigned to take command of the new 20th Maine. And Ames was a strict disciplinarian. I think Tom Chamberlain, who was, who was Joshua's brother, who was in the regiment, um, said he'll just damn us up the hill and damn us back. He's as savage a man as I have ever seen. But Ames realized these soldiers needed discipline. When he took command of the, the regiment, he was, he was disillusioned. I mean, there was no raw material there, it seemed. Um, they were just useless. Um, so he did the best he could. Um, and I think one light in the darkness for Ames was his lieutenant colonel, who was Joshua Chamberlain, who was an intelligent man, and he was willing to learn, you know, the art of war, he said. And he, would, he and Ames would spend night in the tent going over manuals of, of instruction and learning how to... So Chamberlain could learn how to maneuver an army. And he wrote to his wife and asked, him to, asked her to send him some, book, some of his books so he and Ames could study them together. You know, on the transport, the, the vessel that took the regiment from Maine down to Boston, they were, in, they were studying their manuals of instruction. So he was a student again. And Joshua Chamberlain was not Joshua Chamberlain's first name, Joshua. He was born Lawrence Joshua Chamberlain and he decided to change it to Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. But his brother would still call him Lawrence. And he had two brothers with him. John Chamberlain ended up, was at Gettysburg with him, true. He, um, he had been studying at the Bangor Theological Seminary. And his brothers, Joshua and Tom, who was with the 20th Maine, wrote him and said, you know, come down and visit. You know, we'll have a horse saddled and ready for you at the, at the train station. And, so he did. He decided he'd come down. He joined the, the U.S. Christian Commission, uh, which did work helping soldiers, giving them food, you know, giving them medical care. Um, but when he, he arrived at the, the, the train depot, Stoneman Switch, you know, near Fredericksburg, uh, the Fifth Corps had already moved out. His brothers were gone. So he did his duties. You know, he worked in hospitals and, 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 um, and took care of soldiers. And eventually he was sent back to Washington where he ran into Roland Howard, Otis Howard's brother. And the two of them set off cross country to try to find the Fifth Corps, you know, try to find the Army of the Potomac um, through guerrilla infested territory in Virginia. Um, it tells you what a small world it was in a way. Um, um, John Chamberlain had gone to school at Bowdoin College with Charles Howard, who was Otis Howard's brother and serving as Otis Howard's aide during the war. Was was the Battle of Little Round Top and the 19th Maine defense as, as dramatic and pivotal as it is now thought to be? That it was as dramatic, I would say, definitely. Was it as pivotal? 
Um, that is a question that people will, will debate. Um, people will tell you that Little Round Top, had the Confederates captured Little Round Top, it would not have made that much difference to the outcome of the battle. The, the Union Sixth Corps was massed in the area. Um, the rest of the Fifth Corps was, was nearby. Um, they, they could have been driven off, I suppose. It also, people will tell you it wasn't much of an artillery platform. The idea being, you know, if the Confederates had captured Little Round Top, hauled up some cannon, they could have done damage to the, the, the fishhook line of the, that the Union had there. Um, but that's a lot of what ifs, you know. We really don't know. And at that point, Chamberlain wasn't thinking, you know, I have to defend this because, you know, I'm going to win the Civil War by doing it. He was told to hold this position at all hazards by Strong Vincent. And that's what he was going to do. Those were his orders, and that was the, his duty you know, as he saw it, and that's what he did. Now, less famous is the, the 19th Maine, who you mentioned earlier, who was, yes. th they were at the angle on uh, the day of Pickett's charge? They were. In fact, on July 2nd, the day before, they had their first experience of combat at Gettysburg, which was a fascinating story. They were being commanded by a, a young man named Francis Heath, and Francis had a brother, William, who was like a child prodigy who had been around the world by the time he was 16 and he was killed at Gaines's Mills. And Francis Heath was the commander of the 19th Maine, and they were at a position in advance of Cemetery Ridge on July 2nd, and this is after Sickles had moved the Third Corps forward, and it was being assaulted and broken up and was starting to retreat back towards Cemetery Ridge. So Heath ordered his men to lie down. He said he wanted these retreating soldiers to pass over his lines without disrupting them, without sweeping up his men you know, in the confusion and the panic. And so his men were lying down, and a general came up. Now, he, uh, he thought it was uh, General Humphreys who commanded a division in the Third Corps. I don't think it was. Um, it was probably another general. But he, he told Heath to get his men up and stop the retreating soldiers. And he said, no. He said, I'm not going to do that because they're going to get swept away in the panic. Well, the general was very unhappy about that. So he said, told Heath, go to the rear. And he said, no. He said, I've been, I've been received orders from an officer who outranks you, which was Hancock. He says, and I'm not going to the rear. In fact, Hancock had, had ridden up to the 19th Maine before this, took his, the color bearer, moved him a few steps over, and said, you stand there. Everyone else form on you. He says, do you think you can hold this position? And the soldier says, until hell freezes over. And then Hancock rode off. So Hancock had told the 19th Maine where to stand. So, so this general from the Third Corps then rode down Heath's line and told his men to get up. And Heath followed behind him and told his men to get back down. And then the Third Corps, retreating soldiers in the Third Corps, did pass over the, the 19th Maine. And then the 19th Maine made a, a charge against the Confederates and was able to, to halt the forward movement of the Confederates um, and was actually able to refuse its left, much as Chamberlain had done, which very difficult thing to do under fire with green troops who had never been in combat before. Um, because when, once you stop moving back, you have a tendency to want to keep moving back. But he was able to do that um, and then start a charge towards the Emmitsburg Road um, and until a, a staff officer rode up and asked Heath, where are you going? He said, we're just chasing the Rebs. He said, well, you, maybe you should stop here before you get captured. So that was their, their first you know, combat experience, which is pretty amazing. Heath was infuriated, though, when he looked back and he saw soldiers from the Third Corps who had retreated behind them, picking up all the flags, the Confederate flags, that, um, from regiments, you know, men that, that Heath's 19th Maine had routed. 
and taking them as their own trophies of war. He was infuriated by that. So that was on the second. And then on the third, they did participate in the repulse of Pickett's charge at the bloody angle, you know, the, the, the climax of the fighting on July 3rd. Um, I have to ask you about the remnants of the 10th Maine. You say not a single one of its soldiers fired a gun during the battle, although several of them contributed to the fight by wielding yeah. notebooks. Notebooks. Yeah, they had started out as the 1st Maine. The 1st Maine was the first regiment raised. It was not the first regiment to leave the state. It saw no fighting. It, it, it did not go to 1st Bull Run. And they had, it was a three-month regiment, so they disbanded. Um, some of them became the 10th Maine. And the 10th Maine had seen fighting at Cedar Mountain. Um, they had seen combat. And then when those, after two years, their enlistments were up, and there was only a tiny nucleus left, and they became the 10th Maine Battalion. And they were kind of like a headquarters guard for the 12th Corps. And so they received orders to go out and scout at Gettysburg, leave their weapons behind, get notebooks, and go out through the countryside and sketch you know, out where all the, the Confederates they could see were and kind of map out the enemy positions. So that's what they did with their notebooks. Now, there's one story. They approached a, some of the men approached a farmhouse. And as they got closer, their commander could see that there were some rebels behind the house. So without giving anything away, he kind of sideways said, okay, boys, you know, when I give the order, run. So he gave the order, and they made a dash to the woods as the Confederates opened fire. Didn't hit any of them. So they suffered no casualties, uh, but they did take good notes, apparently. What else needs to be written about Gettysburg that hasn't been written yet? Uh, you know, you never know what you're going to discover when you do some research. I, I think that just the stories of ordinary soldiers are amazing. And whenever you can find a repository of letters or journals or accounts, um, those are the stories that, that I would love to hear. Um, Gettysburg has so many controversies, which will never be settled. You know, should Sickles have moved forward? Uh, what would have happened, you know, if he hadn't? Uh, should Meade have been more aggressive in his pursuit of Lee after the battle? Um, I mean, there are, there are always going to be controversies. You know, is Culp's Hill more important than the little round top? Um, and, and I think people will thrash those around forever. And, and these are things you can't come to a conclusion. It's, it's a lot of what-if history related to Gettysburg. We've been speaking with Tom Huntington. He is the author of this book, Main Roads to Gettysburg. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.